Welcome to the Focus on Why podcast. I'm Amy Rowlandson and I ask my guests one simple question, why? Focusing on the importance of why, I share with you the relatable, uplifting and inspiring conversations I have with people from all walks of life. This podcast will encourage you to focus on your why to enable and empower you to achieve the success you desire. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why. Before we get started, are you thinking of creating a podcast or are you a podcast host already? As a podcast strategist, I can help you to launch or relaunch a purposeful and profitable podcast, which will inspire, entertain and educate a global audience. Simply book in a one-to-one call with me right now via the Calendly link in the show notes and together we'll focus on the purpose of your podcast. Today on Focus on Why, I am joined by Joe Berry. Joe, welcome. Oh, thank you, Amy. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's been a long time coming. I've been really looking forward to hearing your why and why you do what you do, Joe. So let's just get cracking and ask you the question, what is it you're doing at the moment? Oh, Amy, that's such a great question. I'm still doing a lot of work online, giving talks, delivering workshops, but I started going back in the room, speaking at different events, going to schools, um, and my passion is communication, and I always start by sharing my story, and I move into being a facilitator. So there are many, many different ways that I am finding a way to empower people to be positive change makers, to create change, help people to move from blaming, making someone wrong to having a another response of empathy and understanding. So blame to empathy, how has that arisen? What's instigated this desire to help educate and communicate your story to people? Well, the extraordinary thing is, is that today is the anniversary of, it's 37 years ago, and it's two days after my father was blown up in a terrorist attack. He was a conservative politician and he was killed in the Brighton bomb on October the 12th, Friday. And on the Sunday, um, which is exactly today, the anniversary, I I went somewhere in London that meant a lot to me. And I sat down and it was in St. James's Church in Piccadilly. I sat down and I was 27 and I decided to bring something positive out of it and to understand those who'd killed my father. I didn't want anyone to go through the kind of pain that I was experiencing, my young siblings were experiencing, because it opened my heart to to what it meant to be part of a war and a violent conflict, and I couldn't go back to the person I had been. I, I lived in peacetime and that had gone. So I started a journey, I made this decision to bring something positive, and back in 84, I had very little emotional intelligence. I did not know the how. I didn't know how to understand those who killed my father and the IRA were responsible and they were at that time the most demonized terrorists we had. So I couldn't have found out from the media way before the internet. But I trusted that somehow life was going to bring me the experiences in order for me to learn. And sure enough, it happened. So a journey started exactly today, which is why it's so amazing for me to be able to mark that moment with you. Wow, Joe. I mean, I can't imagine what it must have felt like for you to be sitting in that church in Piccadilly and having those thoughts and not having necessarily the resources, but knowing that at some point they would be a resolution for you. 
yeah, it was extraordinary. I was so shy back then, and I, I didn't know what to do with the feelings I had. I was a, I was someone used to meditate, not feel, but the feelings were overwhelming. And I, I, I think I almost made the decision in order to survive. You know, I was someone who'd already thought about peace. I studied Gandhi in my early 20s, and I knew I had to be part of the world to create peace out of the, the appalling violence. I had to make friends with the pain of the bomb. And, and it was a massive journey. And I, uh, back then, for me, it was about baby steps. You know, I remember the first step I made. Well, the first step was making the decision, and that was huge. And I really believe every time we make a decision like that, then somehow there is serendipity. Somehow things happen. And the first thing that happened to me was only a few weeks later, and it was it was huge. It was absolutely huge. And it gave me a very clear direction. And I remember I was coming home on, on the tube, and I suddenly felt I have to get off the tube now. And I found myself in part of London, which wasn't very safe for a young woman. And I thought, okay, I better get a taxi because it's getting late. And I end up sharing a taxi with a random stranger. And I could tell from his voice that he was from Northern Ireland. So I said to him, this might seem a bit odd. But I'm trying to understand why someone would join the IRA. Because my dad's just been killed. And I really want to know the how and the why. And he looked at me and he said, Joe, well, he didn't know my name. He said, that's not strange. Because my brother was in the IRA. And he was killed last year by a British soldier. So this is the height of the war that's going on. We represented different sides. We could have been enemies. We should have been enemies. And yet we spoke of a world where peace was possible, where nobody killed, where nobody was killed, where alternative ways were used for resolving conflict. And I left that taxi, came to me, I can build a bridge across the divide and even though no one knows I know and it felt to me like that was my first contribution to peace. And what made you get off that train to then get off into a taxi that then happened to have somebody who had this shared experience I mean what are the chances? I know I have no idea it was just a strong sense of intuition I had to leave and yeah, I mean since then you know I've done thousands of talks and I've always hoped that this man who wouldn't be young anymore I mean, he'd be my age would would sort of go I was the one in the taxi and I could thank him but he's never he's never been there and I don't know his name I, I don't know anything more than than what I what I've shared with you but without that experience I would not have had that clear direction of building bridges and building bridges is something that's stayed and, and grown with me ever since so the first step was making that decision. The next step was that serendipitous moment in the taxi and knowing then that peace was possible. And then the third step being that you could build this bridge across the divide. What then? Well, the other part that was going on was that I felt I had no control over what happened to me, but I could choose how I responded. So I took responsibility for all my emotions. And that meant I took my power back. That if I'd actually carried on blaming someone 
and, and we're talking about decades now that I could have been blaming him, blaming the IRA for everything that went wrong in my life. But every time I had a difficult emotion and I've had rage and grief and you know uh, dark, deep emotions. If I blamed him for those, I would have been hurt twice. Hurt because I lost my father who I adored and then hurt again because there'd be always someone in my life who was my perpetrator, it would carry on. And so I had to break that cycle of violence and revenge. And this seems like it was sort of one one simple thing I did. And that was that, but actually I went to lots of blind alleyways and all sorts of, you know, there were years when I, I got very lost, but my focus was very much on healing everything and taking responsibility. And I ended up going to Belfast in 85. So that's nine months after my father was killed. I went to a workshop by an amazing woman called Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who was helping people finish unfinished business. And I ended up sharing at the end of her workshop about my taxi journey and my wish for peace. And after that, many people came to me in private and said, we can't talk about it, but we live in, we live in the North, we live in Belfast. This is our experience of the conflict. And wh what you've just said, has deeply helped helped me and they thanked me and one of them said please don't go home come and stay with me so I said that's absolutely fine so I changed my ticket and went to stay with her and she took me to many places to meet people who were at that time building bridges peace activists and one day she said well we're going to go somewhere there'll be several thousand people to meeting their Catholics and Protestants have come together to talk about peace I think they need to hear your story. So uh, I went along and, and I was asked to speak. So there I am, 28. I've never given a talk in my life. And there are thousands and thousands of people and they're all born again Christians and they're all doing lots of, of Jesus Christ prostrations and it's very much about Jesus. And my story was not about Jesus. My story was about a human response, um, which that was really important to me. And I got my first standing ovation and... First time I realized that my voice mattered and that it could impact people. And I stayed another few days and went, went home. And I did quite a lot of talks in the next few years, but I hadn't actually processed enough of the trauma to carry on doing the work. And I got myself in some difficult situations. I met someone high up in Sinn Féin, the political wing of the IRA, and we had to meet in hiding. I was like totally out of my depth. And very on my own with it all. So I stopped going and, and it was only in the peace process that my life would change completely again. And what happened? So the first thing happened was that I turned on my TV and there was the only person who's ever caught and sentenced for planting the bomb walking free. And I had no idea he was coming out of prison, even though we were meant to be prepared, there was nothing. And my first thought was, this isn't fair. He's free. I can't get my life. You know, my dad can't come back. And, and how can that be justice that he's walking free? But then I thought, this is for peace. This means less people are going to be killed. And so I welcome this because as part of the peace process, they released all the political prisoners. And I thought, well, this will mean less people will have to go through losing loved ones. So I welcomed it. And then the idea came to me. Or maybe I can meet him. So I moved quite fast from kind of the anger and sort of indignation to, ha, this is an opportunity. 
and it took a year and a quarter. And during that time, because the peace process, I was invited to many, many workshops and happenings in Northern Ireland. And I actually did a lot. I think that was probably the time I did most of my processing of my own trauma and my own grief, met many other victims, met many other men who were in the IRA. I just immersed myself in the conflict. It was an incredibly transformational time. And eventually I got to meet him and that was in November 21 years ago. And it was in a private house in, in Dublin. And, you know, I now work as a restorative justice facilitator, I've done mediation work, like we broke all the rules. <laughs> this is how not to do things. <laughs> it, it was just him and me in a room with no one there to support us or no preparation. But in a way, I'd done my own preparation. And in a way, I was the facilitator because I had one aim only, one need. And that was to see him as a human being. I didn't want to change him. I didn't want to tell him he was bad. I didn't particularly even need for him to know the impact of what he'd done. Though if he'd asked, I would have shared. I just wanted to look into his eyes and see him as a human being. Uh, he was the most demonized terrorist we had back in, back in 2000 because he'd almost killed the British government. And I knew if I could put a face to this man, that would help heal my humanity. It wasn't about making him feel better. It was about something for me. And he started off, I mean, I was terrified to tell you, Amy. I wasn't like, you know, it was like, it was, this was huge. You know, and I was absolutely terrified. But what's interesting is that the part I listened to was this sense in me of, this is what I need. And it was so strong that it kind of it kind of carried all the fear and the doubt and the what will people think and all the you know all the uncertainty around it. There was like this incredible certainty. I need this. And I remember looking at him um, in the first hour and with incredibly silly thoughts like, "Oh, you don't look like my idea of a terrorist." You know, whatever idea of a terrorist is. And then another another thought was like. Joe, what are you doing here? This is wrong. You're betraying your dad. You're with a man who killed your father. Go now, go now while you can. But I just listened to that little bit of certainty and also listened to my uncertainty and my doubts, but I stayed. Looking back, I was more present to him than I'd been to anyone. And I had to, I needed to. And he started off by justifying a lot. He came with the political righteousness. They were the oppressed. And my dad represented the elite and the power. And, and I knew he was going to do that because I'd met other men in the IRA who'd, who'd shared similar positions. So I knew his position would be one of that they were right. And as he's talking, I do remember the moment I looked into his eyes and saw that he was someone who he really struggled about joining the IRA. It wasn't like a quick, I'm going to do this. And when he was in prison, he got a doctorate very intellectual man, but also a man who cared for his community. Now, I'm never going to agree that violence works for, for any kind of injustice because I'm committed to non-violence and always have been. But when he started talking about the people in his community, I could see that he cared. And then as I see his care, I see his humanity and he has his story. 
and he's no longer just the man who's killed my father. And that's when I thought, I'm going to go now, because that was all I needed. And it was hard hearing him justify, you know, he was talking quite coldly about the Brighton bomb, and it was hard. It was, sounded cold and harsh. And that's when he changed. And he looked at me and he said, I don't know anymore who I am. Can I hear your pain? Can I hear your anger? What can I do for you? I've never been listened to like this. And he would later say he was disarmed by my empathy. And he started his own journey because he chose that moment to change. And for the first time, he began to realize that my dad was a wonderful human being. And when he planted that mom, and that is the nature of violence, he demonized everyone in the hotel. I mean, that's that's what happens. And he was always accusing the others of demonizing him. But now he's realizing that he also demonized the other and that there was a cost to his violence, a human cost. So he arrived at, at the meeting with no problems. He was, he was fine. I was the one who had the problems. But he left with a huge, huge challenge, realising he'd lost some of his own humanity. And after that first meeting, it was so clear that it wasn't finished. And I had just planned to go once, and I thought, no one ever needs to know. <laughs> it's just him and me, and that will be that. But now something greater has happened. And you know, I spoke, or he sent me a message yesterday, he sent me a text, so after these 21 years, we're still in contact. It's been a transformational dialogue relationship. At times, I've stopped speaking with him. At times, it's been amazing and touching, but I've grown through it. You know, I have learned things I could not have learned any other way. And so for that, I'm grateful. And I think back to the me this day in 1984 and realize that I've done this you know I am creating something positive out of it I am understanding the other um and I and the journey's not journey's not finished wow I mean I just can't I'm just picturing you and him sitting across the table in a private house in Dublin and just having that conversation but with no understanding or expectation of how that conversation is going to go and again just being alone in a room with somebody who you've got so much emotion for and yet you know they've come quite cold and yet they're the one that left cold but not for the same reasons. They left there realizing that they had a piece missing of their own humanity. And what does that feel like? I mean, you felt, I guess, that you lost a part of who you were when your father died, but maybe you retrieved that in that meeting? I did. I did. I definitely uh, got something back by being with him and seeing his humanity. And then him then seeing my dad as a human being and wanting to know all about him. And the first time we spoke in public was about a year after that. And, and he said, I now know I could have sat down and had a cup of tea with Joe's dad. And those words meant so much to me, because that cup of tea is about recognising the humanity in each and it's about dignity and respect all of which wasn't there at the politics at the time and and maybe isn't even there now. No. But just imagining them together is 
it for me is really healing. So with this experience, Joe, it's carved your route, your pathway, your purpose in a sense. What's the vision or the mission and what is your why now? Um, it used to be that I held the, these islands, the islands of Ireland and England, Scotland and Wales in my heart. And that was what I was focusing on. But now it's the world. And I feel very much part of a global family. And I've spoken in extraordinary places uh, from Rwanda, Lebanon, South Korea, Australia, like all over. And wherever I go, I see individuals who are struggling with how to how to communicate without making someone wrong. You know, I see people affected by violence. Um, I see people who don't know what to do when life has knocked them down. And part of my why is showing people there's a different way. Because a lot of people don't don't know there's a choice. They think that revenge is what you do. <laughs> no. Um, and I do a lot of work in schools and I always start with my story because that puts me in the room and gives me credibility and young people love it. But then it's not about me, it's about them. And I always have a time where I say there's no right or wrong question. I ha I've had some young people really try to sell me revenge and that's fine. You know, I'm never, I don't, I never say revenge is wrong. I'm just curious and interested and given space to explore it until they reach a point where realizing that revenge isn't the only way and then I also like to to move to the how I think there are many many ways of how we move from revenge to empathy how we move from being a victim to being victorious um how we can transform our pain into love and compassion which I believe we all can uh, there are different ways but as a facilitator I can show people how I've done it and support them to find the how inside themselves. One of the ways I think pe people learn and change is when they feel it inside themselves rather than me telling them. So I'm not someone who sort of goes seven steps to resolving your conflict or, you know, eight, eight ways of forgiving. I'm much more about exploring together and the personal connection. I don't even think actually it's the, for me, it is about forgiveness. It's for me, it's about unbounded empathy. That is my that is my goal. And I support people to find a way to have unbounded empathy with each other. The reason why the conflict happened in Northern Ireland and my father was killed was because there was a lot of othering going on. You know, there was like, you are less than us. And we see it everywhere. I mean, we're more polarized, I believe, than we have ever been. Um, and so I can create safe spaces for people to listen to each other who have been enemies. Um, and help them see humanity in each other. I can work individually to help people to find a way to not have someone in their life as their other and to, to move from victim revenge to actually being restorative, finding a way to resolve the conflict. And that's my interest. And my, my why is because I've just, you know, I've just seen so much pain in the world and it's always for the same reason is that we start othering each other. And when we see people in their full humanity, that, that's about empathy, then, then we can't hurt each other. You know, we, we can't. Patrick McGee could not have planted that bomb you know, if he'd 
knew my dad. Now, I know some people do kill people that they know, but they've already sort of demonized them in some way. They blamed them for all the problems in their life. And I think blame is a, a human response. But I'm here to say, let's do it differently because it hasn't worked as a world. You know, we don't have sustainable peace. We don't. We have so much suffering. So let's try something different. You know, I've experimented. And let me help you. Let me help you to learn how to do things differently. I'm not going to do it by telling you what you should do. I'm going to create the right kind of space, the appropriate space for you to feel it in yourself and for you to discover your own inner resources and resilience. It's so empowering, Joe, hearing you speak because you're coming from that, as you say, that unbounded empathy position, that you're coming from a position of not necessarily forgiveness, but certainly not one of revenge or violence, but of the ability to see within one another the beauty and and the recognize, as you said, that Patrick McGee wouldn't have blown up your father if he knew who he was. But by desensitizing the concept and by taking away the individuals and grouping people together as entities, they've made it okay and acceptable to take the actions that they've taken. So you've moved away from the blame, as you said, very much so. And you're focusing on the empathy side. Do people understand that? Do people understand, I want to work with Joe because I want to be more empathetic. I want to be more peaceful. Or do they focus on the pains and the difficulties that they're in and they can't see beyond that? I I think, and that's a great question. I think people, after hearing me speak or working with me, they do see that they can do things differently. And I'm a great believer in that once you've made that decision. So it's almost like we have, when we're hurt, we immediately have a sword we want to aim at someone. You know, it's like, whose fault is it? And and to be honest, I still have that in me. You know, I'm, I'm not a saint at all. <laughs> so I, I suggest we, we take that sword and we put it in the ground and go, I have no control over what happened to me, but I can right now make a decision. You know, I'm not going to go for revenge. And then having made that decision, then a whole new journey opens up. And I can be there and I am there to support people. And so my new workshop um, that I'm doing online is the gift of conflict. And that's to support people and give them the skills. So how do we have that difficult conversation? Sometimes we actually need to share with people the impact of what they've done, of their behavior. You know, unbounded empathy doesn't mean we're always well, like a doormat, we go, you know, we have to sometimes challenge people. And I think challenging people without making them wrong, without making them feel guilty or defensive is really difficult. And that's one of the areas I've been focused on. And I now teach it. It's like, how do we challenge people so they understand the impact of what they did and therefore themselves want to make changes? rather than because we tell them to. I mean, I believe if we tell people, you're bad, you're wrong, how could you do that? Then people are unlikely to take responsibility for what they've done. And I can give you an example of recently, someone who I know really well did something that really, really hurt me. And we weren't going to do this what he did, but it was very painful. And because he means so much to me, I knew I had to talk to him about it. And I knew that 
himself wasn't um, like he wasn't a bad person. It was just he just did some behavior that caused me harm. And I and I shared it with him and I shared the impact on me and what I felt afterwards and, and how it landed. And 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 he just went, oh, Joe, I had no idea. I had no idea. And now I understand. You know, wh- what do I need for you to feel better? And that's the kind of work I do as a restorative facilitator as well. Um, and he didn't feel blamed. He didn't feel guilt. Now, there are times when I haven't done that so skillfully and and people can feel guilty and blamed because this is so difficult. But that was like one of my examples. It actually worked. And you know what? It actually enhanced our relationship. I now trust him more. And like when I was hurt, I was like, well, I never want to see him again, you know. <laughs> but now it's enhanced our relationship and I trust him more. So that is, I think, the, the benefit of having these conversations, which can be difficult and messy and not always straightforward. But when we can find a way to communicate our distress without making someone wrong, then there's so many advantages. You know, we feel better. The relationship has changed. Um, I, this is someone I work with. So it means that we can we can carry on working together with a new understanding. And he now knows he's safe enough to share if I've upset him as well. So it's brought, I think, a deeper level of, of trust and, and intimacy. And you said, Joe, that you held the islands in your heart and, and now it's the world that you're focused on and that you're focused on the feeling and the peace building that's involved there. Does that weigh heavy on your shoulders or on your heart to have that responsibility, to take on that responsibility, knowing that your voice matters and knowing that you can create this impact, but knowing that you've got such a huge task at hand? I have moments, but I'm not the only one. Yeah, There are people around the world who are doing amazing work. You know, and and the, I'm so blessed. You know, I know people right now in Palestine and Israel we're doing incredible peace work. You know, I, I'm speaking to a group in South Korea on, online because, um, yeah, because of the pandemic. If I was there two years ago, doing amazing work, bridge building there. Like people around the world, in Rwanda, South America, Mexico, I actually met someone. I, w- I was at a kindness festival on the anniversary of the Brighton bomb two days ago. And I met a friend there who I first met in Sarajevo at a peace conference. And then in Mexico, she organized uh, my trip there. And all these people are now part of my support group and inspire me. So I'm not doing this on my own. And that wouldn't be right. I think it's about everyone doing their, their part and, you know, we used to call it random acts of kindness. I think it's now everyday kindness. You know, and that's why speaking at the Kindness Festival is so important, because there were people there in, in, was in Leeds, which is a very interesting place and in what they're doing for community projects. And so there are always solutions, I believe. And my focus is always on, on hope. And some people uh, I know don't have hope anymore. They're, they think there's do- doom and gloom. There's all sorts of reasons why. I, I see all these people giving solutions to the problems we have. And I nourish myself with them. And that's what means that, yeah, I might have moments of overwhelm. And yes, there was a difficult day for, for Northern Ireland, which is why I got myself speaking on the radio, because that's the other thing. And so if I'm feeling overwhelmed, then it's like, okay, what do I need right now? And that it's such a powerful question that we can ask ourselves 
because there's some need that if it was met, I would feel better. And my need was to communicate, which quite often was my need. And it wasn't just a friend, but I wanted to speak on, on, on the radio. And so I got to speak about how I feel about the Good Friday Agreement and what's happening in politics at the moment and how I see the solution. So I think the answer is there's so many amazing people in the world and we don't necessarily hear about them on the media. Well, we don't, <laughs> but they're there, you know, and, I, and I'm so grateful and blessed to know these amazing people. And you said back in 1984, you had very little emotional intelligence. How would you consider yourself to be now? Uh, yeah, a lot more, a lot more. And I think one of the things about emotional intelligence is that there's always more to learn. You know, it's like people say they're a really good listener and I go, well, I'm learning. You know, listening is something that I teach and talk about because I think it's really important. But we're always learning because our emotions change um, the world changes. There's never like a static thing of like, I've arrived. So yes, I'd say my emotional intelligence is now uh, a lot more heightened and I'm, I'm just so aware of what I'm feeling all the time. And self-care is now really important. If you said to me in 84, Joe, do you do self-care, self-compassion? I would have looked at you as if you were like, what are you talking about? You know, now especially when I go into schools, you know, we spend a lot of time on, on how they communicate with themselves and, and self-care because I can only do this work because I take such care of myself. So yesterday when I put myself out there on the radio and I got hundreds and hundreds of comments and one, you could almost call it a death threat. It wasn't very nice, you know, and, and I, even a few years ago, the voice in my head would, would have gone, Oh, Joe, did you really say that? How could you say that? And like judging myself for being so vulnerable on the public radio sector. But actually, yesterday I was like, ah, oh, doesn't matter what I said, it's fine. You know, I, that's just, I was just capturing how I felt at that moment and it's fine. So that's an awareness of like the inner judge and, and what I do with that and building my self worth. And back in 84, my self worth was actually very very low well i mean this podcast episode alone has not just had a focus on why it's had a focus on hope on transformation on feeling on compassion on love on empathy on peace on communication on justice on dignity on respect and as you just said self-care and self-compassion and self-worth ultimately it's a focus on humanity joe and thank you wow what an incredible journey and focus you have in life. Thank you. I mean, Amy, you've just got such an amazing way of receiving what I say and giving it back. And, and honestly, it's an, it's an honour to, to know you. I'm really pleased you're in my life. It's an absolute pleasure, Joe. It's been incredible hearing why you do what you do. I've loved every second of this. It's been an absolute pleasure hearing your journey. And wow, I'm just in awe of the way that you have rebuilt your bridge, how you are now focused on restorative justice, how you're facilitating incredible workshops, how you're sharing your experience in situations across the world. And this podcast, as you know, is going out globally. Your message is being heard in the places where people will need to hear this. Because as a peace builder, the world is your stage. 
and the workplace needs to hear your message. So thank you, Joe, for sharing it. It's been incredible. How can people reach out and contact you? I have a charity, Building Bridges for Peace. I also have my own website, which is um, joe-berry.com. I'm on Twitter and uh, Instagram, but the website, um, I will reply to every message. Amazing. And I'm sure, again, as has recently happened on your radio interview, you will have lots of people reach out to say what an incredible share you've just had on the show today. So thank you, Joe. I almost don't want to finish. I feel like there's so many more questions for me to ask. So perhaps we'll have to continue this conversation offline and, and ask those questions on social media so people can get more of those answers that they may have. So thank you, Joe. Do you have some final words for the audience, please? Well, Amy, you mentioned the workplace, and I am now shifting my work from the arena of peace and war um, to the workplace or individuals. So the lessons I've been learning apply so much to the workplace as well, because as human beings, how we manage to communicate conflict, how, just how we are, our well-being, it's all part of the emotional intelligence moving from blame to empathy. So if people would like to work with me, I start with my story, but then I move into smaller workshops and we do the how. Um, and I know that you know, I can make a difference in the business world and also individually. And I think the last thing I want to leave people with is we are living in a very challenging time with the uncertainty. And I think the words we need to be telling ourselves and recognizing is how well we're doing considering the challenges we face. And to really, really know that, like quite often we think we should be doing better, but actually everyone has had their challenges. So to be super gentle and to know we're doing our, our best and that together we can make a difference. We all have a voice and we all matter. Thank you for listening to Focus on Why with me, Amy Rowlandson. To show your appreciation and to help other listeners understand what value you have received from tuning in today, please leave me an Apple Podcast five-star review. Remember, the conversation doesn't end here. To keep it going, connect with me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook or Twitter, or join the inspiring, uplifting and positive Focus on Why Facebook group. All the links are in the show notes. Have a purpose, have a plan, Focus on Why.